Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, we are filming season three of the Honey and Hustle podcast live at the Durham Bottling Co. right in downtown Durham. We're about to get into a great conversation, but before we do that, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to share this episode with someone who you think might get some value from it. Feel free to tag me on the podcast on social media, and I'll be sure to put those links on the video and in the description below. If you're listening to the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. It helps others find the show and lets me know how I'm doing at this video podcast thing. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to check out our affiliate links, shop our merch, and subscribe to the Honeypot newsletter and this YouTube channel, all at the links in the description. Without further ado, let's get into it. So taking it back to kind of the beginning, you're living in Durham now, but you were working on Wilmington on Fire, the original film yeah. in this series. Um, under the under your uh, independent film uh, company, yeah, Stone Street. Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about how you one found that story and to how you decided to go about not only creating it and bringing it to life in your own way, but distributing it and getting people's eyes on it, making people aware right. that this is what happened. Right. Well, you know, I was living in Atlanta, <clears throat> Georgia at the time, and um, a lot of people don't know this, that I started off doing acting and modeling. Um, and I was about 100 pounds lighter, you know, back in those days. But, you know, I did pretty well. Um, I did some stuff, some cool commercial stuff in New York, um, in Georgia as well. That's what made me want to make the move. <clears throat> so I said, you know what, let me... Uh, kind of stopped doing that and I wanted to start to tell my own stories and make my own films. And I was familiar with the 1898 Massacre story, but I also saw that no one actually did a a documentary on it. And I was a huge fan of John Singleton's Rosewood um, and also another documentary called Banished by um, Marco Williams. And it's an excellent documentary, similar to Wilmington on Fire, but his documented three uh, racial massacres in Georgia and Arkansas. And so I said, you know what? Let me do something on the Wilmington Massacre. And so that's what we did. And um, <clears throat> I saw, I decided then that I wanted to um, launch this film, you know, with my production company. I just started Speller Street. And um, the rest is history. Um, you know, it was really, you know, we have no budget, couldn't get no funding. And so I was able to get some talented individuals um, that believed in me. And I knew that it would probably be a one and done situation, you know, with these guys, because they were very talented. And just off of just 
their reels and their ideas. I was like, man, these guys are going to blow up. And so they did after Wilmington <laughs> on fire. You know, they're working in Hollywood right now, but we had a great experience. And we're actually, I'm actually thinking about writing a book about the experience and they want to get involved with that and just talk about how that experience helped them grow um, and further their careers. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's how we did it. You know, um, <clears throat> I reached out to, you know, different researchers, certain direct descendants of the victims of the 1898 massacre, yeah. and we made it happen. You know, it was like a three-year process of shooting everything. Ooh. But since this was my first film, I forgot that you needed post-production funds, <laughs> you know, editing and coloring and yeah. scoring and all that. So I was just, uh, you know, trying to figure out how I'm going to finish paying for this thing. But luckily, out the blue, um, you never know who's watching and following you. Okay. And so uh, David West, who's a retired NBA player now, he was playing with the uh, Indiana Pacers at the time. Okay. He reached out and said, man, <clears throat> I heard about your film. And is it available on DVD yet? I said, well, we're still working on it. Um, but when it's ready, I'll let you know. He said, well, man, how much do you need <laughs> to get this thing finished? Because he's really into black history, black culture. He's from um, Garner, North Carolina as well. Okay. And so I said, man, <clears throat> I need like X amount. He said, well, let's talk about it. And so, you know, me talking to his business partner, you know, back and forth, I couldn't, I didn't believe it. I was like, man, what? And I was living in Laurenburg at the time because yeah. I had moved from Atlanta back to Laurenburg to work on this project. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I'm from Laurenburg. I know this dude in the NBA who I was a fan of anyway. Yeah. I know he's not paying attention to me. And so they come to town to play the Charlotte basketball team. And they say, look, man, come up. We got you a ticket. Hang out at the game. And then I'm going to introduce you to David, and we'll talk about it more. So I bet. So it was my first time going to an NBA game. You know, I'm nervous, plus excited. I'm like, man, I can't mess this up, but this is my opportunity to get the funds I need. Yeah. And so, you know, I went to the game, you know, chopped it up. After the game, he introduced me to David West. We talk. He said, yo, I want to partner with you on this. Let's do it. Okay. And my guy's going to write the check for you. And that's how we got it made. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So just, but I think it's important to note that like you had done most of the live work yeah. at that point. Yeah. And I think that luck is something you can't predict. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it's like you got to put in the reps, put in the time. You got to. You yeah. got to. And then, you know, during this time, while I was filming and trying to raise funds, I didn't let nobody know that I was struggling with it. Yeah. You know, I, I saw what um, a lot of rappers would do. You know, they would go on the radio, promote singles, say, hey, you know, my album's coming out in a few months, but it doesn't come out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I was like, let me do the same thing. Okay. Get all this promotion, get on every radio show, podcast, blog that I can to promote. Mm -hmm. And it helped because yeah. he actually checked out one of those blog posts okay. and uh, I think it was Mark Anthony Neal's um, Left of Black series. Yeah, yeah, Mark's yeah. a good friend of mine. He actually introduced us okay. and because David had reached out to him to ask him about that film, you know, Woman to No Fire, because yeah. he follows his blog and, they, um, and Mark Anthony Neal hit me up yeah. said, man, David West reached out to me, man. He, uh, he's interested in possibly getting involved. Yeah. said, man, hook us up and that's mm -hmm. how it happened. Nice, yeah. yeah. And just to note, for people who don't know who Mark Anthony Neal is, he's a professor at Duke. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget which department. Over the, uh, he's over the uh, African American Studies Department at okay. Duke yeah, University. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And his show is still going to this yeah, day. Yeah, Left of Black. Yep. Yeah. Great show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's on YouTube. So for you guys that are watching on YouTube, 
check mm -hmm. out that after you watch this. I'll put a link down in the description. Definitely. Um, but going back to that partnership, so that you know got you to finish the film, mm -hmm. and then now the film has been doing great. There's been a lot of eyes on that film. So oh, can yeah. you talk to me about how you went about not only like getting awareness for it yeah. as you were making it, but distributing the film and getting eyes on it? Well, you know, when the film you know got finished and when we got the funding, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was time to premiere it. Yeah. And so we decided, I decided to premiere it in Wilmington. And it's a festival called the Kukuloris Film Festival. It's real big. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the top film festivals in Wilmington. And the reason why I wanted to do it, one, because it was a big festival there. <laughs> then also they usually have the festival during the actual week of when the massacre happened. You know, the massacre happened November 10th. And that festival usually goes on during that time. I said, man, it's be great promotion. I know I'll get all the promo. Everybody will be excited about it. <clears throat> and so what we did, we did it, promoted it, and we ended up having the festival's most attended screening ever, nice. 600 people Ooh. in uh, Thalian Hall. And plus, we had 300 people on the outside that couldn't get in. Mm. It was crazy. People scalping tickets, <laughs> people, you know, trying to sell the tickets online. It was just a cool experience. Mm -hmm. And it was my first time talking in front of people. So oh. 600 people, first screening, you know, I'm just nervous, couldn't speak, mm -hmm. you know. But, you know, over time, as I did more screenings, you know, you, you figure out that everybody asks you the same questions. <laughs> and uh, so that was the first ever experience. And then I said, you know what? All these people that couldn't get in, let me rent this same venue the next month. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I convinced a friend of mine to, you know, give me a, a grand mm -hmm. to rent the venue. And we packed it out again. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> I did the same thing at UNCW. Keenan Auditorium the following month in January, mm -hmm. packed it out again. Yeah. I said, you know, let me take this thing on the road throughout North Carolina. So we came up here to Durham, packed out the Hayti Center, mm. went to Goldsboro, packed it out there, and then Charlotte, packed it out there, and then it just started rolling. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, started to submit to different festivals. We won a big, fest, uh, big award at the Pan-African Film Festival in LA, which was cool. Um, and then we just kept rolling and rolling and it just started just picking up steam everywhere. You know, celebrities were shouting it out, especially recently during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, when we first went on lockdown um, and, you know, George Floyd was murdered and people were talking about removing Confederate monuments. Um, <clears throat> we started getting a lot of um, shout outs. Um, Jason Weaver, the actor. He um, shouted us out, told people to watch it. Mm -hmm. uh, and also Hillary Burton Morgan, um, that used to be an actress on One Tree Hill back in the day. Okay. And her husband is uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan for the uh, Walking Dead folks who <laughs> fans, that, that, that's her husband. And she gave me a huge shout out. Mm -hmm. And uh, she interviewed me on her IG Live talk as well. Yes. And she wanted to get involved in part two. She heard I was doing a sequel and wanted to support. And so she came on board as, a, as an EP, executive mm -hmm. producer. Mm -hmm. And that's been a cool experience as well. Because, you know, she has a huge reach and audience. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been gaining support not only with the first one still, but the upcoming second one as well. Okay. And so it's been <clears throat> embraced by a lot of Hollywood folks. And I never imagined that, you know, me just being from North Carolina, mm -hmm. you know, doing this small budget film. But it ended up um, really inspiring um, a lot of folks, you know, across the globe, yeah. you know, with this story, with this film. Yeah. So documentaries can serve a lot of different purposes. Mm -hmm. And I think... Netflix, with the rise of documentaries that are available on Netflix, there has been a more positive correlation associated with documentaries, but there is definitely a time where documentaries are like these boring educational films that right. nobody really right. saw as entertainment or right. inspiring or those right. type of things. So I think with the rise of independent filmmakers who are 
putting their own spin and own perspective on right. the purpose of a documentary film mm -hmm. um, in terms of both entertainment and inspiration in addition to education. Right. Uh, we're seeing a different kind of connotation being associated with documentaries. Wow. Um, and then even used in smaller forms, a short documentary and yeah. docu-series has yep. been yep. on the rise. So like the feature length documentary is not the only thing that's associated with that genre now right. of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, you know, you're like, okay, I saw the success from Wilmington on Fire One. Mm -hmm. I want to do a part two because there's more of the story to be told. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to branch out and do another film that you have coming out in spring of 2023. Yeah. What was kind of the idea behind that? And how did you take what you learned from the first film and apply that to the films that you're working on now? Well, I know <clears throat> what I took from the first one was that the success of the first one brought in some revenue. <laughs> and so I said, you know what, we're going to. I'm a, I got a budget now yeah. <laughs> with the second one. I got some support, got a budget. Let's step our quality up mm. as well. Because, you know, the first one, people will give me a pass. But if I continue to make those same production mistakes going forward, no. You yeah. know, because, you know, I put myself in as a consumer as well. You know, I want a quality product. Mm. And so I say, you know what? <clears throat> We're going to have to step our game up um, production-wise. Mm. Um, and then with the second one, I wanted to make something that felt complete. You know, the first Wilmington on Fire, all history about the 1898 massacre. Mm -hmm. And so with part two, since, you know, going there for all those years, filming, meeting my wife mm -hmm. there as well, and just meeting some great people, I always felt like I needed to show the community today and what the community is doing mm -hmm. um, to um, make the city better and get it out of that shadow of the 1898 massacre. And that's what part two is about. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a verite focus approach. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, I think that's needed. And I wanted to show African-Americans solving their own problems mm -hmm. and pulling themselves up to, to make those changes in the community. Yeah. And that's why I decided to do it in that way. And then also, um, martial arts, you know, I'm a big fan of that, studied as a kid, and my teacher actually learned from the guy that I'm doing the documentary on, okay. um, Grandmaster Vic Moore, mm -hmm. and um, it was an honor to be able to do that, you know, filming that for about three years now, mm. you know, going to finally put it out next year, and being able to be a part of the Firelight Media Fellowship as well by the uh, legendary Stanley Nelson, um, mm -hmm. that's his doc lab. Okay. And so having that project, a part of that has been a, a huge blessing. Yeah. And really telling that different type of story of African-American history and culture, because we rarely discuss anything about black folks in martial arts. Yeah. And Grandmaster Moore, since he's here in North Carolina, and he was like one of the first black professional um, karate champions in the United States. And he's still teaching to this day. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I need to get this man his flowers while he's still here. Mm -hmm. And so he's loving it. <clears throat> it's really energized him, re-energized him as well as his organization is growing um, because of the stuff we've been doing. Mm -hmm. And um, everyone's excited about it. And it's a very different film than Wilmington on Fire. I know when I first told people about it, they're like, okay, why are you doing that? I was like, because it's it's more stories to our community than just getting killed by white folks. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I wanted to do something, even part two of Wilmington on Fire is very different mm -hmm. than the first one. You know, and then also Grandmaster is totally different. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do something that was more about black empowerment, 
um, how we use martial arts as a way of empowerment and to strengthen our communities and, and just be better overall mm -hmm. in general and just what martial arts can do for a community. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show that. And also showing these two young guys that he's been working with for quite some time as well, mm -hmm. passing that knowledge on to them. Yeah. And um, that project, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And really, uh, you know, can't wait for the world to see it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so, in a way, what I'm kind of hearing with this martial arts film, especially, is talking about the different forms that generational wealth can take, mm. you know, because uh, it's not just money. I mean, money is right. definitely a big part of that, but it's also how we perceive money, how we perceive skills, how we perceive our intellect, how we perceive our own right. um, ability to um, excel in society right. in every sense. Right. Um, and so that's a really good take on that, that I think um, definitely needs to be shared and yep. definitely is kind of different from the, you know, we need to have our own a new Black Wall Street. We need to have a new, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong, we, with, there's nothing wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, we need that. But yeah. there's, there's different ways that we can go about uh, creating prosperity in our communities and, and organizing within our communities and stuff definitely. like that. So, yeah, I'm really interested in that. And I think um, from the sports take too, it's kind of like, a, you know, we talk about, you know, when I would say when popular culture thinks about black excellence, they think about, you know, musicians, they yeah. think about, you know, athletes, and right. there's something to that, right? right? But I don't think those conversations are being had publicly about what it means to be a person of influence and also create right. wealth through those, right. those means. So. And, you know, those guys from men and women mm -hmm. um, during this era of martial arts, they were heroes in these communities, like mm -hmm. Grandmaster Moore. He started off in Cincinnati, so you had people in, like him in Cincinnati. He was like the hero for the African-American community in Cincinnati. Then mm -hmm. you had people in Chicago, New York, you know, with Moses Powell and those guys. So they were like our superheroes because they could do all these amazing things like break, you know, break bricks. Mm -hmm. and You know, Grandmaster Moore, we have some footage of him chopping a potato off a guy's neck. <laughs> You know, so they would do, you know, these guys were our superheroes, yeah. you know, in these communities. Yeah. And so, you know, we want to talk about that as well and just how it's not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, karate has kind of went away in our community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're more focused on football, basketball. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But this was our thing at one time. Mm -hmm. And it's just one I just wanted to show how martial arts is, is, has played an important part in our culture and community. Just, you know, just looking at the music, Wu-Tang and all this other stuff, how it's played a big part in our culture yeah. and how we, you know, need to bring that back okay. somewhat. And where is this film taking place? Um, well, he lives in Delco, North Carolina. So okay. majority of it takes place in Delco. And then two of his students that we've been documenting, one is in Kinston, North Carolina, the other one is in Columbia, but we've actually traveled to Miami a few times because uh, one of his students is a, is a top world karate champion. So we went to Miami for a big tournament okay. um, that he had a few years ago. And we've also filmed other people that have studied under him. We actually are going to his hometown, Cincinnati, in a few months okay. to finish up filming there. And so he's going to show us, you know, where he grew up, where he first learned karate, mm -hmm. um, where he opened up, because Grandmaster Moore actually opened up the first karate school in Cincinnati okay. um, back in the 60s. And then, you know, just show us where he actually learned karate, because a lot of those guys from that era learned from, you know, a lot of the black soldiers who, who had fought in World War II mm -hmm. that were over in um, Okinawa and stuff like that. They learned some judo, some karate here and there, and was able to kind of piece together what they learned. Mm -hmm. And when they came back to the United States, 
Um, they would, you know, get like, you know, a warehouse building mm -hmm. and then just start teaching kids. And that's how Grandmaster Moore learned from this guy named Ron Williams, who was in the Marines mm -hmm. um, back then. And he learned a little bit of some stuff from Okinawa and then came back to Cincinnati. And he started teaching Grandmaster Moore and a few other kids in the community. Okay. And that's how he got his start. Okay. And so we want to, you know, have him go back to his old town mm -hmm. and just show us these places. And then another guy, one of his top former students, uh, Michael Awad, we're going to be interviewing him. And he has a, a huge storage unit of a whole bunch of old mm -hmm. photos and everything. And so I'm kind of, they haven't talked, they haven't seen each other in years. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to kind of bring them together just to talk about um, how strict as well of a teacher Grandmaster Moore was, mm -hmm. but also what it did for him. Mm -hmm. and his brothers as well who were who actually under Grandmaster Moore became one of the top um, karate guys in Cincinnati and throughout the whole state of Ohio it was all because of Grandmaster Moore gotcha so. gotcha okay sounds like a really good story developing here a lot more yeah. of um, that community aspect coming mm -hmm. out as uh, more characters come into play mm -hmm. um, so with all that being said, you're still operating under Speller Street Films, yes. and one of the things that you talk to independent filmmakers about through your work through that and through uh, the Southern Documentary Fund mm -hmm. and your work at Duke uh, Center for Documentary Studies is not only creating a good film, yeah. but how are you going to get people to see that film? And you right. said you just kind of learned from what other people were doing, which is like... Yeah, that's all like musicians, you know, people like French Montana, Currency, you know, people that I was a fan of mm -hmm. that built like a, a grassroots following. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, let me tweak it a little bit and let me do this with film because you got to realize I was living in Laurenburg when I did Wilmington on Fire, so I wasn't in a big city. Mm -hmm. I was in a small rural town, so I had to figure out how the internet worked, how to you know, build some audience, because I wasn't in a big town like New York, Atlanta no more, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I had to figure out some things and just try to utilize the internet. And the beauty of it is the internet really has helped a lot with what we've done over the years. Mm -hmm. And I remember when people, they, they was like, oh, I'm not doing social media. I'm like, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's changed now, you know, because of the different algorithms they didn't changed up. Mm -hmm. But back then, a few years ago, oh man, it was free reign. Mm -hmm. And you can just promote, market, and meet so many great people. Mm -hmm. And that's how people um, like David West and others found out about me, was yeah. the internet. Mm -hmm. And so it opened the door. And a lot of these connections that I made over the years, um, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to make them. I would have to actually be in New York or L.A. Yeah. and hopefully run into some of these people, yeah. you know, by chance. Yeah. But the internet has really opened the door um, to make those connections and build that audience. And I think filmmakers need to continue to embrace that, yeah. you know, so I'm always doing, I'm always, you know, meeting interesting people, networking, doing interviews, the whole nine. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a nonstop process and you have to grind it out just like an independent artist because you're an independent artist yeah. and you have to think that way and always think outside the box as well. Yeah. Oh, no. So there is one more question I want to ask you about that, but I do just want to touch on. So I think like when I first got into photography and filmmaking and started looking for places for inspiration uh, for how to approach certain things, how to approach marketing, how to approach creating, how to approach finding my style and everything. One of the people that I always looked at was Missy Elliott and how Missy Elliott was never afraid to look at different things for inspiration. Right. Right. And you can see how her impact has lasted to this day and she's mm -hmm. been, she was so ahead of her time um, even then and even now some of the yeah. stuff that she's made oh, yeah. has never been replicated. So right. um, I think it's interesting that you were like, don't just look at people who are in your Field, but look at other artists outside across, the like, box and then you know you can still look at people in your field like I, I think Spike 
um, was an inspiration to me, not for the filmmaking, it was for how he did his merch. Because mm. I remember when he had um, first did his films, you know, he had Spike's joint, and he has it online now, but he had his own storefront mm -hmm. where he sold his um, the T-shirts for his movies, the posters, mm -hmm. the, the VHSs, yeah. books, you know, so any Spike stuff that you wanted, you can get directly from him. Yeah. And that's a revenue stream. Mm -hmm. And so he does it now as well. You know, it's online. He has an online store, Spike's joint. But looking at that, I was like, man, you know what? I need to have some merch. Mm -hmm. I need to have some shirts, some posters, some some things like that mm -hmm. where, where I can actually sell. And a lot of times, you can make some good money. It's a good revenue stream. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, looking at Spike over those years and he's how he's continuing to do that. And still, it really is one of the only ones in Hollywood that's still doing it because he had that entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. you know, spirit as well mm -hmm. where he had two spots. He had one in New York. He also had one in L.A., two storefronts that mm -hmm. sold all this stuff. Yeah. And so now, you know, he made the transition just doing everything online. Yeah. But it's that model, yeah. you know, that, that was really in inspiring yeah. to say, you know what, you might can't make a lot of money off the film, but you can use the film to sell other things. Right. And so he, he really um, mastered that. Yeah, I know. I think it's interesting. I'm not saying you copy this, but I'm no. just saying that Spike Lee just released a book. I don't know if you've seen it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're like, I'm making a book. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. But you know, <laughs> I've always wanted to do it just off of my experience uh, doing Wilmington on Fire. And it's really, you know, it's going to be called Wilmington on Fire, the making of a movement. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually created a movement, you know, around it. And, and um, so the folks that were behind the first one and the second one, you know, we just want to come together mm -hmm. and um, do this book and probably do like a little short doc as well. Okay. Um, because it really changed our lives, but um, not only our lives, but the, the community in Wilmington as well. Yeah. So. Um, so just a quick question yeah. on this. So going back to the George Floyd, mm -hmm. kind of the beginning of that um, outburst of social movement and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, um, were you aware of what happened in Wilmington with the new police chief um, when she was kind of running through the tapes of recorded police car conversations and mm -hmm. there was a, <laughs> a recording? Of yeah, see, we were there. We, okay. we were there during this time okay. um, because, see, Wilmington on fire, too, we started off during the, the protest that they had there, mm -hmm. and one of the young ladies that was behind that became pretty much the leader of that. Mm -hmm. um, we, she's one of the main folks in Wilmington on Fire too, and so during this time, you know, you had, you know, they had like these standoffs against the police, and then you know, like a month later, that's when that that recording came out, mm -hmm. um, talking about how they wanted to kill the protesters, one, mm -hmm. uh, and also just kill black people in the community there in general. Mm -hmm. And you know, we were there to kind of document those responses, and we were trying to push for them. You know, not only us as a film company, but the NAACP and other activists was trying to get the judge to release the audio because mm -hmm. you know he wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, they just would. They just released the transcribe. Mm -hmm. and and we wanted to say, nah, release the audio as well. And judge wouldn't do it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And this is around the time that, you know, the new police chief that came on, mm -hmm. um, Donnie Williams. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, I think it was his first week or <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with that. And um, it was crazy because I know that... Um, We've actually captured some some stuff, you know, that the police department was doing to the protesters, and so I reached out to the police department and said, "Hey, um, I want to get a balanced side. You know, can can we actually document some stuff um, that you guys are trying to do better? Mm -hmm. You know, just to have a good balance." And they didn't want to get involved or mm -hmm. participate, so I said, "Well, you guys are looking bad out here." <laughs> 
And so, hey, it is what it is. I try to give you an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but it was one young lady. Um, she actually worked at the police department. And she reached out years ago. And she was a big advocate of the film. And she wanted to use the film um, for the uh, police academy training mm. for new hires. I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, I think that'd be great. And so she was really <clears throat> a huge supporter, and I wanted to film her for part two to show what she's doing. But I had to go through the police department first, mm -hmm. and um, they didn't want to want her to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she was really disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, but I say it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I do respect you for wanting to do the right thing right. and to try to make a difference, even though you're not getting the full support from the department. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so we were. We were there for a lot of that stuff, yeah. um, a lot of that stuff. We were there when, you know, a few of those <laughs> rallies <laughs> that were there, you know, they had like a big back the blue rally <laughs> that was out there. We were there for a lot of the Trump supporters. When Trump came to town, we went out there to interview people. It was wild. Mm -hmm. um, so we documented a lot of this stuff. Um, over the past year and a half. And okay. So that's why I'm, I'm very excited for folks to, to, to check yeah. out the film. Okay. Um, so going back to the distribution part of this is film festivals, so not yeah. just social media, but film festivals. Mm -hmm. So what is your approach to doing a successful film festival mm -hmm. circuit for a film? Well, it depends. It depends. Um, I tell filmmakers all the time. Um, I know a lot of times filmmakers, they want to go to Sundance and yeah. Tribeca South by... I worked at a film festival, <laughs> full frame, mm -hmm. for years, and they're up there. You know, it's one of the top doc festivals in the world. Mm -hmm. It's tough to get in. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's tough. And I tell filmmakers all the time, if you don't get into these top festivals, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that your film is bad or nothing. It just might not fit. You know what they're trying to do. You have different programmers. They have different tastes. You know, and also I don't expect. Um, some of these top tier festivals to really resonate with my work because my work is for our people. You know, now if you want to check it out, it's cool. But I don't, just like with some films that I see, I'm like, man, I'm not, it's not, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So if I had a festival, I probably wouldn't program it either. You know what I'm saying? So I always go with the approach of finding out what type of film you have. So if you have something that's focused on black history or black culture, Look for those festivals, like the Pan-African Film Festival or the North Carolina Black Film Festival, the Haytai Festival here in Durham. Mm -hmm. um, reach out to those folks, because a lot of times they're looking for um, quality um, black films, especially docs. Mm -hmm. um, so reach out to those folks, man, and um, a lot of times, not only will they show your film at the festival, they'll bring you back during the year to do a screening series or something and pay you some money, mm -hmm. you know, a screening fee as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've done over the years is just try to grow with our own festivals mm -hmm. and grow with them. And, you know, if other people reach out, want to do something, let's do it. But that's what I try to do. I try to find out, I try to look for festivals that kind of share the same theme mm -hmm. um, as my films, yeah. you know. And then also just do your own screenings as well. You know, film festivals, <laughs> you know, aren't the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but you can kind of figure out what really works for you mm -hmm. and fits for you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you coming through today. Thank you. Um, Thank where you can people me. find your films that are coming out soon and just find out more about Wilmington on Fire if they haven't seen it yet? 
Spellastreet.com. Okay. Spellastreet.com. Got everything there. Got the merch store where you can buy Wilmington on Fire. You can stream Wilmington on Fire. Mm -hmm. And it has all the social media links where you can keep up with everything we got going on. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate it. Nah, thank you.